Hey, you guys, it's awesome to be up here on Father's Day. And um, I always look at Father's Day and I think about a few things. First off is the year's like partway over now, you know, we hit this time of the year. And I don't know if you know it or not, but after tomorrow, the days start getting shorter. I don't like that. I like the longer days. I like 85 and sunny, you know, I, I like it to be warmer all the way, right? Right? 85 and sunny is always good, right? It's always good. Um, but that's not really what I'm here to talk to you about today. But I really think that Doug, Douglas, really hit kind of the nail on the head this morning when he talked about how our Heavenly Father loves us even more so than our earthly fathers do. Now, those of us who are dads, I don't know if I could love my kids any more than I love my kids. Does that make sense? I mean, as a dad, I don't understand that. But do you know what? God, get this, God loves my kids more than I love my kids. I don't understand that either, right? God has a way as our father uh, of loving us and caring for us. And he put this plan into motion. You know, the, the morning or the day that Adam and Eve got up and they ate the fruit, uh, you know, I don't know what it was. I grew up in Wenatchee and East Wenatchee, so, you know, apples to me, eh, you know, not a big deal. But whatever the fruit was that Adam and Eve ate when they disobeyed God, he, he didn't wake up that morning when they did that and go, oh my goodness, look what happened. I better come up with plan B. Do you, do you let that sink in for just a moment? God never had plan B. God has always had a plan that human beings created in his image, bearing his image, would live in communion with him. And we sometimes get that a little bit out of focus. And in fact, Pastor Jerry started a new sermon series this last week, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it today. We're going to talk about sneaky grace. Now, I get it. I get it. We're in the sermon series, Finding the Good Life, and it's about discipleship as a journey of God's grace. Now, John Wesley, he often spoke about all the different spiritual disciplines, which that doesn't sound very inviting, does it? But he talked about them as means of God's grace. When we talk about prayer and we talk about worship and we talk about different things we do individually as Christian disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ, and things that we do corporately together as the body of Christ, ministry and all of that kind of stuff, when we think about those things, it's the means of grace by which God works through them in us and then through us to those around us. And today I want to talk about sneaky grace. Now, if you've been a Nazarene for very long, you've heard the term prevenient grace, right? You guys all know what that is, right? You guys could explain it just for me, right? I got to tell you, when we go into our ordination interviews and I happen to be on the board of ministry for our district and we ask the ordinand candidates to explain to us and, and we, 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 I don't know if we love doing this or not, but we love having dialogue with them because we love hearing how that next generation is going to communicate God's grace and his holiness and his sanct and how he sanctifies us and sets us apart. We love hearing that from the next generation because it gives us things and we, we write it down and we begin, we begin to preach those things, you know. I always, I always look at those times in my interviews when I hear other people speaking like that. Hmm, that'll preach. And I write that down. And have, I have some notebooks in the back, and that'll preach. Oh, I write that down. That's good. That's really good. I love hearing that stuff, right? But when we talk about prevenient grace, what we don't understand is that it's, it's grace that goes before, and I call it sneaky grace, because I believe that God is at work before we even realize it. Did you know that? Today's scripture that we're going to talk about and we're going to read together tells us the account between a Roman centurion and his name is Cornelius and the apostle Peter. Now, Cornelius was in charge in the city of Caesarea. It's a Roman city by the sea in occupied Israel. It, it would have been kind of a crossroads of places because being by the sea, it would have been a port, but it was under Roman control and heavy Roman influence there. 
He would have been raised, Cornelius knew the Roman gods. He would have understood the Hellenistic, pluralistic religion of the day. But in spite of all of that, the Bible tells us that he worshiped the one true God. He had been influenced in some way, shape, or form. He knew that the God of Israel, this is God. This is who I need to be worshiping. And, and honestly, in, in the story between Cornelius and Peter, the, the issue and the, and, the, and the conflict isn't about really Cornelius and, and religion issues. It wasn't really about that. He was worshiping the God of Abraham. The problem was he was a Gentile. Now, if you think about this for just a moment, where were the Gentiles allowed in the, in the temple? <laughs> Nowhere. Were they allowed in Jewish homes? No. If you were a good Jewish person in Jesus' day and in Peter's day, you would have not had a Gentile in your home. You also would not have gone into their homes. See, the issue wasn't with the fact that he wasn't worshiping the right God. It was with he wasn't the right person. Israelites didn't associate with, with Gentiles. They didn't eat with Gentiles. They didn't hang out with Gentiles. They didn't go into their homes. They didn't even really spend a lot of time with them. And this is the problem. Cornelius wanted to follow God. He wanted relationship with God. And God wanted relationship with Cornelius. And he was on the outside. Looking in. All that Cornelius needed, all that he was waiting for, was for someone to come tell him about Jesus. That was it. And you have, to, you have to realize that even the Christian Jews, even the Jewish people who had converted to what was then called the way, they were still really kind of secluded and only ministering to other Jewish people. They were really only converting other Israelites. So, God speaks to Cornelius during one of his times of prayer, and he tells him to send some men to Joppa to collect Peter, who's going to come, and he's going to explain everything to him. And you know, we also see God, his Holy Spirit, kind of going before, in that he also sends his Holy Spirit to Peter, and, and what does he say? Peter's up on his rooftop, and he's praying, and he's trying to worship God. He gets a little hungry, gets a little tired, and God causes him to have a vision. And what's in this vision? Well, it's a big sheet of animals. And they come down, and God tells Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. There's pigs in that. no. There's other animals in that. You've said, no, no, no. I have never once... Never once have I ever let anything unclean in this mouth. No, 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 no. And three different times, God does this, has this interchange with Peter and says, don't call what I've made unclean. Peter kind of argues with God, for lack of a better term, about defiling himself by eating animals that go against the Jewish dietary laws. They kind of go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And if I say that one more time, I think we'll all get seasick in here, won't we? But you know what? Peter's trying to figure all of this out. Cornelius' men show up downstairs, knock on the door, and they're Gentiles. They can't go into his house, so what do they do? They call for him. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter, hey, listen to what these guys have to say. And because of that, we pick up the scripture. If you want to turn in your Bibles or in your version app in your Bible, Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 23, it says this. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Oops. Wait a minute. Hold on. He what? Dan, you just got done telling us. Jewish people didn't do it. Yeah, but remember, the Holy Spirit said you got to listen to what these guys say. They're, they're going to talk to you, and you need to go with them. So he, he invites them in to be the guests. And the next day, get this, they spent the night at his house, okay? Peter then starts out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. And the following day, he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately. And it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. The word of God for the people of God. And would you say with me, thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. You see, things were not looking good for Cornelius. He was doing all the right things. He was praying. He was worshiping God, the one true living God of Israel, right? He was even giving to the poor. And if you noticed in the scripture, it was his prayers and his giving to the poor that caught God's, God's attention. That idea of being remembered, he, he remembered those gifts, that means you've got God's attention, but what happened is, is that Cornelius lacked real relationship. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father, what, except by me. And the Christians of that day had forgotten even that Jesus himself had given them the great commission. You know, we say the great commission, but it really is a co-mission. Amen? to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ pretty much everywhere. Back then when we interpreted uh, different things and, and different words, we said it in all the nations. Most of your different speaking happened within national boundaries. That's not true today. It would be better, a better interpretation of that would be to go and make disciples to everyone who speaks differently than you. Huh. We have different speaking all over the place nowadays, don't we? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Ooh, Jesus is really meddling when he says that. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. You can't get any more final than at the ends of the earth, right? I mean, I get it, okay? In Jesus' day... In Jesus' day and time, when he said these words, people really thought the earth was flat, okay? We know the earth is not flat. We know we can't walk off the end of it like I could walk off the end of this platform, right? We know that. But this idea of to the ends of the earth means in every nook and cranny, every little place that there is a human being, God wants his gospel to go. He wants the story of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth. And guess what? He told that to Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel and all the disciples and about, oh, you know, four or 500 other people who were gathered there and they forgot. They kind of all collectively forgot. And what did they do? They concentrated on just the Israelite people. They were still kind of in this closed-off society. You know what? Some scholars, as I read this, some scholars even say that it was probably between six to eight years after Jesus ascended that Cornelius and Peter meet up. That's a long time to forget. And here's Cornelius, who's worshiping God, who's taking care of the needy, who is saying, I don't have a relationship with God. I don't know God yet, but I'm pretty sure this is what he wants. And this is what I need to do. And my question to you is, how does that happen? 
how does some Roman centurion all of a sudden get the idea that this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrew children, the in a Hellenistic, pluralistic place where there were hundreds of gods to worship, how does he come across this idea that this is who I need to worship? And I'm very glad that you asked that question this morning. Because now I can start my sermon. I'm just kidding. It's sneaky grace. Prevenient grace. Sneaky grace. Great theologians, much smarter than I, call it prevenient grace. It's not actually written down that way in the Bible. But you see it all throughout the Bible. You can see God sending his Holy Spirit to prepare hearts. It's grace that goes before you and I are all part of and a product of God's sneaky grace. Some people have described this as the hounds of heaven tracking you down. Now, I know it's been probably 15, 20, maybe longer years. In Washington State, you used to be able to use hound dogs to track cougar and bear and hunt them and they put their nose to the ground and they go after and they chase and they are relentless absolutely relentless until they tree something and then they're usually relentless at the bottom of that tree they usually don't come off the tree until you literally pull them off the tree right so some people have called this prevenient grace this sneaky grace that god has sent the hound of heaven the holy spirit to chase down Anyone. I want you to hear that word, anyone. Anyone who will listen. Now, I don't know how many of you have been following the devotions that I'm doing. They tie into the sermon series. Pastor and I kind of set it up that way intentionally so that, you know, what I'm doing Monday through Friday helps us to prepare our hearts for Sunday. And this last week, we talked about how when Jesus uh, went out after his disciples. Remember, that was backwards, right? In Jesus's day, if you were a rabbi, you sat on a rock, or maybe you sat under a tree, or maybe under a little tin roof or something. I don't know. You, you sat underneath something. You sat somewhere, and people who were interested in becoming your disciples as a rabbi, you would sit there, and then they would come to you. And Jesus didn't do it that way. Jesus went to them. Uh, the story of Philip and Nathaniel is, I think, amazing. Because Philip goes to Nathaniel and he says, come and see this guy. This is the one, the Messiah. I'm sure of it. We're going to go listen to him. Come and see. And Nathaniel comes back with, what do you mean that carpenter from Nazareth? What, what, anything good come out of Nazareth? What are you talking about? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He's that son of a carpenter. Are you crazy? And Philip doesn't say anything back to him. He just says like, come and see. And they go. And as they're coming, Jesus talks to Nathaniel and he turns that come and see into follow me. And then he takes the follow me and he turns that into a promise. I will make you. And then he takes that I will make you and turns it into something we get to go and do. It's kind of funny, side note, when I say we get to go do, I texted my dad, I said, Dad, hey, why don't you come over here for the weekend? It's Father's Day. By the way, I have to preach on Sunday. And then I, I hit send. And then I corrected, I said, no, I get to preach on Sunday. <laughs> Folks, that come and see turns into follow me, and the follow me turns into God doing that work, that deeper work within us, so that he can work through us. We are saved, yes, from the death and sin and the pit of hell. We are saved from the sins we commit and the sin that we're born into. We are saved from all of that. Please do not think I'm negating any of that. That's really important to me. But we are also saved to do something. Because that come and see, that follow me, I will make you into and I memorized it as a kid growing up, fishers of men. Fishers of people. Remember, he was talking to fishermen. He went and found fishermen. Now, the last time I checked, fishermen, huh, 
in Jesus' time were not looked upon very kindly. They definitely were not sought out to be disciples. Carpenter, fishermen, tax collectors, all sorts of terrible, this, this motley crew. Jesus had this motley crew. He really did. But you know what? You know what? This come and see turns into that follow me and follow me says, Jesus says, I will transform you. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter one, for since the creation of God's, the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood what has been made so that people are without excuse. This idea of God going before started the moment he spoke into existence the world. Whoa. He wanted me to know that he loves me so much that he did this way back then. <laughs> when he created the world, Paul tells us that. And what Paul is saying is that God has revealed himself in his greatness even through the very creation of the world, and that's enough to make himself known, and that's what Cornelius is up against. He knows. He knows God is God. He knows and does all the right things for all the right reasons and worship to God, but he's missing something. And God is answering Cornelius's prayer and says, go send some guys to go get this guy named Simon Peter. Go check him out. Now, God had his work cut out with Peter. Peter is the apostle who denies Jesus and Jesus reinstates him. But he's, yet, he's still kind of concentrating. He's still kind of short-sighted on where this message needs to go. And you know, if you think about it, aside from this instance here with, with Peter and Cornelius, really we don't see the gospel being spread until Saul becomes Paul. And we see Paul spreading the gospel outside of the Israelites. And it's really odd that, that God would choose Saul, who became Paul, because Saul, remember, is a Jew's Jew. He was part of the Pharisees. He was born into the right family. He was circumcised on the right day. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He even zealously persecuted the church. And Jesus, that one, yeah, you're going to do this for me. And then what happens? It just explodes. He spreads the gospel outside of the Israelites. So Peter's kind of a tough sell. Think about it. I don't know that I want to argue with God. I have argued with God before on a couple of things. Can I just say it's not that pleasant? I don't know how Jonah did it. I really don't. I don't know how Jonah's like arguing with God enough that he runs the other direction. I mean, I've kind of argued with God a little bit and kind of been stubborn with a few things in my life, but I don't run the other direction. Peter's kind of being a little stubborn, you know, when, when he's talking about this vision and God and him have to talk three times. And then Cornelius's men come and they state their business. Peter lets him in the house. Peter's being obedient to God. There's this massive heart change. And it would be easy for us to talk about today how God went before on both sides and then jump to the end of the story and see the Holy Spirit being poured out on the whole household and the whole household, you know, being baptized and we sing a song and we give a blessing and we feel all warm and fuzzy inside and we go home. We would love to just go ahead and celebrate that Gentiles are in. But if we do that, we're going to miss what God has for us here. Because the stage for celebration in that instance was set when Peter invites those Gentiles into the home to hear what they have to say. Do you get that? Cornelius was already under the influence of God's grace. We don't know how, but it snuck up on him. And by the time we see Cornelius, we can see evidence of God's grace working in him and through him. And he doesn't even know what it's all about yet but he's already doing. He's already past the come and see. He's past the follow me. He's past the I will make you. He's doing. The Bible says that his giving to the poor, his concern for those around him who were less fortunate than him was one of the things that made God sit up and notice him. 
God's grace is working in his life, and that shows me that God's grace can show up anywhere. And I want to talk to you really quickly about four different things, four different places that I believe God's grace shows up. First is at the crossroads of life. Think about this for just a moment. Something happens, the crossroads of life. Cornelius' celebration of conversion happens in Caesarea, which was a crossroads if ever there ever was one. It was the collision of Jewish, or excuse me, Roman authority and Jewish influence. Things probably were a wee bit tense there. But his life was a crossroad. He was a Roman military leader. Think about this for a moment. He had hundreds of soldiers under his command. He was a God-fearing man. He faced towards the monotheistic traditions of the Jews. He was already under the influence, but it showed up at the crossroads of life. Grace shows up when we who are Christ followers and we are disciples pay attention to the crossroads of the people around us. Amen? It's those crossroads in the places of tension where the world is barely holding together. Those are openings for God's sneaky grace. And you can be part of that. Did you know that? Just like Peter was part of Cornelius' conversion story, you can be part of that. The second place is that I believe God's sneaky grace shows up in the curiosity of people. Dr. David Busick, who wrote this book, Way, Truth, and Life, he, he quotes Lovett Weems, who said, God seeks us before we ever seek him. The initiative of salvation is with God from the beginning. Before we ever take a step, God is there. No one wakes up in the morning and on their own power, in their own volition, decides that I need to turn towards God today. You see, when that happens, I believe honestly, they are already under God's influence. They're being awakened by this sneaky grace. And I believe that curiosity is probably one of my favorite examples of God's sneaky grace. When people are curious, they ask questions they probably ought not ask. They show up in places they probably wouldn't go if they were to think about it. And where they don't normally show up, they hang out a little bit longer and listen a little bit longer. And the beauty of the situation is you and I don't have to have all the answers. Because God is doing the work in us and through us. Jesus didn't say, come follow me and therefore transform your own self, did he? He said, come follow me and I will transform you. I will make you. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on a minute. What is my responsibility? Show up. <laughs> is it hard to show up? I don't think it's that hard to show up. But that's part of God's sneaky grace. People are curious, asking questions, showing up in places where they don't normally show up and hanging out and listening longer. That's awesome. We see it with Cornelius. He had already adopted Jewish traditions. He had already been devoutly worshiping God. He was praying to God regularly. He was giving to those in need. God was at work before he heard the gospel message. And we can begin to see how God is at work going before we're even there. It's the crossroads of life. As a chaplain in Garfield County, I can't tell you how many times I show up probably to see people on the worst day of their life. And there aren't answers. There aren't answers when somebody who's trying to get a dog off the highway gets hit by a car, killed, knocked completely out of their boots. There are no answers for that. When someone's house burns down, there are no answers for that. We show up and it's weird. 
It's strange. It's maybe foreign to us because we think we got to come in with all the answers. And really the only thing we need to come in with is I'm here. This is not a good situation, is it? I'll cry with you. I'll sit with you. I'll walk with you. I'll help you get through this. I don't know how, but I'm here. That's all God asks of us. The crossroads of life and in the curiosity of people. We just got to show up. God does the work. He does every bit of it. The third thing is authentic relationship. And I say that because there is some kind of difference between being acquainted with somebody, knowing their name, maybe what their vocation is, and actually having authentic relationship with them to really know what's happening in their lives. Did you know that? I often talk about it like this. There are a lot of people that know about Jesus. There are. They know about him, but they don't know him. There are a lot of people that think they might know him and just know about him. And then there are people, I don't know if you've met them, but there are times when I've gone up and introduced myself to somebody and I shake their hand and, and, and there's that physical contact and all of a sudden they know Jesus and I know that they know Jesus. I don't know how the Holy Spirit does that. They just, they know Jesus. And I'm like, oh, that's God's Holy Spirit right there in this person. I can tell. There's some kind of discernment. I call it my spiritual heartburn. You know? They know. They don't just know about him. They are in relationship with him. Never underestimate the power of showing up in someone's life. God works through people who show up. Think about Cornelius. He bumped up against those who practiced the faith. But he still didn't know. He was highly esteemed among the Jews in Caesarea. And that was saying something. Because Rome was occupying Israel. And when God's word sits there and says he was highly esteemed by the Jewish people, that means they respected him. Um, folks, there wasn't a whole lot of people that respected anything about the government that was occupying their land. Oh, wait a minute. There was something about this Roman centurion that people held him in high regard, high esteem. And that's where God met him and told him, send for Peter. And God calls Cornelius to obedience and Cornelius answers. As far-fetched as it sounded, he knew, being a Roman leader, he knew he couldn't go into their homes. He knew that they couldn't come into his home. He knew the rules around their religious practices. He knew this stuff. And yet, God says, I want you to break the rules. I want you to send for Peter. Send your guys to Joppa. Have them bring Peter back to your home. You see, God's sneaky grace, when we're in authentic relationship, God's sneaky grace has a way of aligning our lives with others. A Jewish Christian in Joppa is aligned with a Roman centurion in Caesarea. Wow, that's amazing. You know, for me, it was various people that God placed in my life, probably too many to mention. But looking back, I see God's sneaky grace at work over and over and over again. And I don't know if you realize this, but if you are in relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ, if you don't just know about him, but you know him, you carry his Holy Spirit in you wherever you go. Into every situation. The last part is, I believe that God not only works through the crossroads of life, not only in the curiosity of people and in authentic relationship, but I believe God works in conviction. Do you ever make a decision where you know this is the right decision? I've got to do this. Bobby and I came here knowing this is the right decision. God telling us we got to do this. There's a whole story behind it because we weren't looking. 
We weren't looking to come here. I wasn't looking to be an associate pastor. I really wasn't. I was happy to sit in Pomeroy, honestly. I was going to spend the next 20-some years there because I'd already spent almost 11. I was just figuring I'd sit on my front porch, drink sweet tea, you know, live life there in Garfield County. God had a wonderful church, a wonderful community. We raised our kids there. My kids are all Pomeroy pirates. You know, I mean, hey, we, we just thought that was the bee's knees. We thought that was great. And God said, hey, Dan. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure? Can I see some picture ID? And you know what? I don't often tell people you should ask God for picture ID, but he gave me some picture ID. Looking back, I can see God going before and God putting people in my life and God doing different things. But I also see where he convinces us. The conviction throughout the life of Cornelius, his conviction, he knew he needed to turn towards the God of the Israelites. He knew that he needed to help others. He knew he needed to act morally and upright. There was conviction when he sends for Peter. It's like, okay, go get, go get Peter. He knows this in the depths of his being. And conviction is that grace that begins to align our lives to the kingdom of God, even before we make the kingdom our home. That's why we need to look at discipleship less like a bunch of things that we have to do, right? Less about those restrictions, less about all this stuff, and more about the journey of grace that God has for us to walk through. Finding the good life starts long before we make the decision to live the good life. Did you know that? Discipleship doesn't begin at the moment of conversion. I mean, we set it up and we think so, right? Oh, now that you're converted, we put so much on that moment of conversion. I wish we'd put more energy into living with people before they're converted and living with people after they're converted and discipling them by the way that we live life with them. Because discipleship happens all along this journey of grace, nurturing and fostering and fueling the work that God is doing in our lives and in the lives around us. Sneaky grace is involved. Sneaky grace was already at work in Cornelius's life long before Peter entered the scene. Cornelius just needed someone to connect the dots for him. He needed to explain why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's look at what happens next. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 34, says this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit, so just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Did you hear that line in there that said, while Peter was speaking these words? Remember, this is a group of people 
that Cornelius had gathered together, family and friends, to come hear what Peter was going to say. Think about that for a moment. And Peter doesn't even get his whole sermon out there before the Holy Spirit is working. Do you get that? Not only does God's sneaky grace go before us, but it also does the work. We just have to show up, or maybe I should say it this way, we get to show up. We get to be a part of this. God's grace isn't in there. Prevenient grace was at work setting the stage for Cornelius' commitment. The prevenient grace was setting up Peter for this unique calling. And it's this part of sneaky grace that we often miss is because that same grace at work in the person on their way to Jesus is work in the life of the one being sent. God had to do a work in Peter's heart before Peter would invite those men in. The story on, of Peter on the rooftop, that's, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. But I will take this time to say this. At the time that Grace was sneaking up on and drawing and wooing and calling Cornelius and those people in his house and the friends he would invite, God was also sneaking up on Peter. Sneaking up on him on a rooftop, challenging his preconceived ideas, dismantling his traditionalism, erasing boundaries and softening his heart so that Peter would be able to join God at work where he was. How many times, by the way, do we pray, God, would you please bless what I am doing? I get caught up in that. God, would you bless what I am doing? And instead, my prayer needs to be, God... Where are you working that I can join with you? You see the difference? Peter was doing God's work, but God had a plan and he needed to soften up Peter's heart. There's times when I need to ask God, God, can you soften up my heart so that I'm working where you need me to be, not where I think I need to be? There's a responsibility to respond to God's prompting, to show up, to be present, to discern the faithful movement of God. And it takes us, oh my goodness, it takes us well out of our comfort zones. How many of you are comfortable being around people who don't talk like you, act like you, um, eat the same foods as you, live the life that you live? I can remember my first week in Pomeroy and I was doing some outside jobs, um, helping to cover some costs for moving and things like that. And I was up on a roof helping somebody roof. And, and one of the guys in our church w- it did uh, the, the flat roof, like what we've got around part of the church here. Uh, I can't remember what they're called, but they're rubber and you basically melt them together and all that stuff. And he had another young person at the time, because, you know, I was younger then, uh, they're working with us. And the, the kid kept asking us, so why, why did you move to Pomeroy? I said, well, I came here for a job. Oh, you mean to work with Stan doing roofs? I said, oh, no, I have another job that I do, but I came here to do this and, and that and everything. And he kept pressing me and kept pressing me and kept pressing me. And honestly, you know what? Sometimes I really, I really don't like saying I'm a pastor because then people change. They're not themselves. And this kid was a little rough around the edges. He was telling some off-color jokes. He was using some language I wouldn't use. And I got to tell you, To be there and to not look uncomfortable took a little bit of work. And the minute that I told him, well, I pastored the church that Stan goes to, just a block right down there, I'm the new pastor, the new Nazarene pastor. Oh, you're one of those. I I tell you that story to tell you because later on, later on, my witness to that, to that young man, my witness to him and being able to walk with him through some difficult times and he had a difficult family and everything. it, It was there because I allowed myself to be in a place that wasn't comfortable for me to be in. to be doing a job that I probably wasn't really that well suited for. I don't like heights. 
Stan, Stan Warren, my friend Stan Warren, he climbs up and down things like a monkey going crazy. I mean, I mean, he, it don't matter to him. He'll swing off of things he probably ought not to swing off of. He'll climb up things he probably ought not to be climbing up. And I'm like looking over the edge, and it's only like a two-story building, but I'm looking over the edge, you know, it's not very promising. I go upstairs in this, I don't get very close to the edge of the balcony. I don't look down. That's why they don't ask me to count. They ask Marv to count because he'll go up there. He'll stand right on the edge and look over the edge and see who all, you know, and he'll just do his little count and one, two, three, four. I see him up there. Nuh-uh. I hug the wall. I believe what the Bible says. Lo, I will be with you always. <laughs> I am biblical about that. You ask my wife, I don't like to fly. If God wanted me to fly, he'd have given me wings and feathers. Again, you're thousands of feet up in the air right? Don't like doing that. But you know what? Because I was up on that rooftop, I was able to walk through some really tough things with this young man. And God was able to speak truth into his life. And there were seeds that got planted. And you know what? I may never get to help. I may never get to harvest the fruit that comes from those seeds, but that's not my job. My job is to show up. I respond to God's prompting. I, I am present. I discern where he is. And even if that takes me past where I like to be, my comfort zone. If prevenient grace is discerned at the crossroads of people's lives, it's also found among those who are willing to set up camp at these crossroads to follow God's lead when the opportunity presents itself. We can't expect others to show up if we're not willing to show up, can we? I couldn't expect that young man to show up in church on Sunday if I wasn't willing to show up where he was. There's a story told about a young man who writes a letter to a pastor explaining how over the years he'd been in and out of church how he simply just didn't believe in God. He was a self-proclaimed atheist. He says, I, didn't worship, I don't worship Satan. I just don't believe that God's there. I don't need God. I don't think he's there. Started dating this young lady. She invited him to church, so he went. Oh, someone showed up in the crossroads of his life. Now, I got to tell you, if, if, if you're at home and you are a young person, if you are here and you are a young person or a single person, I do not endorse missionary dating. <laughs> I don't. But it's okay to be friends with somebody. It's okay for us to hang out with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Towards the end of his letter to, his, to this pastor, he writes about experiencing uh, being at one of their services. He expected, he said, I expected to go and hear how great thou art, or even I'll fly away. I expected some old timer to drone on and on about the, old, the Ten Commandments in the Bible. What I found was different. I wouldn't go so far to say I had a come to Jesus moment, but I will say it felt good when I left there. My girlfriend was surprised when I asked, when are we going back? Although I have not turned over a complete new leaf, I thought you would like to know that you have me listening. The pastor who received this letter shared this story and wrote about what happened next. He said, months after I received this email, I showed up at his workplace. He was an esteemed country music artist, and he had asked me to come to his concert. And I knew that grace works both ways. I can't expect him to show up where I am if I'm not willing to show up where he is. Halfway through his main set, he stopped the music and announced, You all out there know me. Y'all know that I'm not the straightest arrow I mess up, and y'all know that I've not been particularly fond of religion. But tonight... I want to tell you that my pastor is here. My pastor is, is in the front row and not to shove one religion down anyone's throat, but if you find yourself looking at some point, you can come to church with me. And the pastor remarked, and just like that, grace snuck up on all of us. Let's pray. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, how much we realize and we confess to you today that you have loved us abundantly and extravagantly beyond our comprehension and understanding. Your grace has invaded our lives and our souls. And Father, we don't even fully grasp that yet with our finite minds. Lord God, we confess that you are work within us even right now. And Father, we ask that you would continue that work, the deeper work within us, Lord God, that would remove the obstacles that get in our way, that life has brought us, the busyness of life, our wounds, our assumptions. Lord God, we want you to make clear to us what needs to be removed for our lives so that you cannot just work in us, but so that you can work through us for the lives around us. We want to be part of building your kingdom. So Lord God, we just ask that you would continue to equip us. That you would continue to send us out and that you would continue to do the transformational work, not just within us, but through us for those around us. Lord God, help us to show up. Help us to just be there and help us to know and understand that when we do that, you build your kingdom. Lord God, I think back on my life and all the times that you snuck up on me. There are not enough thank yous in the world. You are a good, good father. And on this day where we celebrate Father's Day, I want to say thank you so much. But I know it's not enough. There are not adequate words for us to tell you thank you and how much we love you. Lord God, thank you for being a good, good father. Thank you for receiving our offering of worship today as an offering of our hearts. And Lord God, as we go from here, help us to remember that you do the work. You do the work in us and you do the work through us. That it's not by our might or our power or our planning or our direction, but it's yours. It's by our submitted life to you that you are able to do these things and grow your kingdom and bring yourself honor and glory. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you've done. Jesus, thank you for the death and your resurrection, making a way for us to be in right relationship with the Father. Father, thank you for allowing the Son to sacrifice himself on our behalf and allowing that, making that to be the payment for sin that we could never pay anyways on our own. We thank you and praise you for all that you've done in our lives. And we thank you and praise you for all that you're going to do in Jesus name. Amen.